I am Norwegian, and I decided to become an artist when I was 18 years old. I wanted to be a painter. And at that time, I lived in California. I was an exchange student in Santa Cruz. And it was a very important moment for me to be exposed to art in America, both because of what was going on there in the, in the older museums dominated by the American Expressionists, Calder, and those kind of huge works, the large-scale art pieces. And in Norway, we, of course, had Edvard Munch, and we had a kind of a painterly tradition with a few painters, uh, also Francis Wiedeberg, which was a more contemporary. And in sculpture, the dominant sculpture was still the contemporary of Edvard Munch, which was uh, Gustav Wiegeland, which uh, both of those artists were influenced by Art Nouveau. And Norway had a, a kind of bumpy road in modernism because they missed a lot of turns. So basically, when I came into the art world in the late 70s, I came back from Santa Cruz and wanted to start my career as an artist. I met a lot of resistance in the, the local art environment that I was frequented, which is in Stavanger, by the way, which is a very small town on the west coast of Norway. And it created a kind of situation for me that everyone I talked to about going forward with art and painting had a very negative attitude towards what was possible. They mostly talked about everything that was not possible what I couldn't do before I had done such and such and such. And it was quite a contrast to what I had encountered in California, which was a very nourishing and positive outlook on creativity with a lot of response to my talent. So for some reason, I became, I always say that I became radicalized in California. <laughs> Although I had been to a Sex Pistol concert before that in 77 in Norway, so I was kind of on that trail. But I actually decided, like my older brother, who was a pacifist and had refused to go to the military in Norway, that I actually refused to go to the academy because I felt that they were teaching 30-old knowledge and that it would not be procreative for me to go there. Well, it's funny you say that because yeah. I'm a professor and I feel the same way. Like that's one oh, yeah. of the reasons why I made this podcast is that I'm sitting here teaching the next generation of artists, but I'm teaching based on the way I was taught 30 years ago yeah. uh, by teachers who were taught 30 years before that. So there's, there seems to be like this generational gap, but sort of, of like 20, 30 years where like the teachers try to teach the next generation of students, but they don't but they, they don't actually know how things are working. So that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find out like, how are things working? Because I've been in my ivory tower for too long. I think that maybe the question is to find out what is not working. That's a lot of things that are not working basically. Actually, it's kind of like a pun on that thing because people are not working. I mean, they're not actually working and that's, uh, it's intellectually, it's creatively. Most of the barriers that I met in, as a young artist, which I still meet today in academics and 
also with people who are running institutions. You know, they might have their degree, their three or four or five year studies, their degrees to get their position, but they're not actually working with what is going on in our time. And they're not working with themselves as a creative potential and not curious. They're not working with a curiosity. They're not working on the community properly, like to build it up and to know what is necessary in the community both here and internationally. They're often working on their strategy for their careers and their security nets and their, you know, the security net, yes. <laughs> they're well, working the on that. the theory of a security net, yeah, the, uh, the theory of tenure. <laughs> yes, and I find that always frustrating on every step of my career, which, you know, it's been 40 years. It's basically that kind of, negligent attitude towards what art and creativity is about. Well, sadly, like my position or my experiences in academia are very much where it's meant, oh, no, universities and sort of places of higher education are oftentimes like teaching to a test or teaching to a curriculum that is designed by administrators, not artistic practitioners. So we're trying to meet government regulations or, or state regulations or whatever kind of like, even like NASAD international accreditations, these kinds of like sort of meeting other people's standards that are not necessarily the community's standards upon which we are teaching in. And I feel like that's a, a, a weakness of the current arts, academia in general. Like my universities that I've taught at, they were very much like that. Private art schools are much more free, much more supportive, much better. And I mean, they're not free, they're super expensive, but they're much, they have a, a lot more freedom yeah. to teach the way they want to teach versus having to meet these guidelines, which is a contemporary thing. You know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there weren't these federal mandates of what was taught in, in art schools and stuff, but now there are. And that, mm -hmm. I think, is a, a generational problem that is only going to get worse. Because I've not been teaching, I've been doing some teaching positions, but short-based on in different universities around. I have a flow of interns coming from universities in Paris, in Venice, in Norway, and sometimes abroad, all, all over the place, coming, for instance, to Paris when I am working there. And I had to, when I was young, I had to defend my decision to be autodidact, which pissed a lot of people off. And people would still, there's a certain generation in Norway that still will come and accused me of not having a formal education after I had my solo show in Centre Pompidou and, and my talk for New York Times about art for tomorrow and so on and so on. You know, I've done really great things as an artist. Yeah. Speaking of that, we met in oh. Doha. Oh, we did. How nice. Yeah. It was very brief. I mean, I was at the event and we. Yeah. I was at near your Stargate exhibition, the, okay. the piece there. Yeah. So at that event out there, uh, we met briefly because I was actually yeah. working in the United Arab Emirates teaching there. And so we came over to Doha for that event. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I mean, th that's great. I'm happy that you were there.
it's a very small world. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, what I see in my students is that they lack actually, okay, I wanted to say this in a kind of a double way because when I was young artist, it was this kind of academic training that they meant that I lacked. But then I started to find out that I knew much more about almost everything than most of the artists I met because if I wanted to find out something about serigraphy or textile printing, I actually went to the library and I read the books and then I ordered the materials and then I I became a chemist and I mixed all the chemicals and and I built a frame and I, I prepared the screen and so on. So, you know, so I learned a lot from that. And then I met those people who had that formal education and they would go like, oh, no, I was sick that day or you know, I, I, you know, they were out partying and, you know, all those things, which is fine for me, but the argument of the formal education didn't hold up. They didn't know more than I did. And so the autodidact is a kind of phenomena that has been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And all of a sudden in 100 year or a little bit more, I mean, it, Women were not even allowed to get an education and still are not in many places. All of a sudden, you cannot do anything without an education. So what happened to transfer of knowledge through natural culture and assimilation and other improvised settings? You know, that, how did people build boats to go around the world? How did they find out astronomy or, you know? So this is a misunderstanding that is based on a kind of economic position because the most powerful universities are the most educated. No, 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 not educated. They might be the most educated, <laughs> but they are most prestigious and expensive. This a business. And so to get in there, you have to have a lot of money. Like say Harvard, I don't know how much the tuition is now a year, but it's a lot. and. So when internet came in the 90s, I worked very much with web-based art and it became an incentive for me to work there because we saw a glimmer of hope in the 90s that we would tear down the hierarchy, the pyramidical structure and to equalize the right to information everybody could get educated through the internet um, and you know access the same knowledge and therefore these institutions would actually not have that argument anymore what argument they do have is that they have the network and that is true they do what i have realized over the years is that that network is not ready to include people who are not in the same network. It's not based on knowledge. And like some prominent leader of one of those institutions in America told me, she said, some of us had to pay for their education. And at that, I said, I'm sorry, but I'm sure that I paid more for my education than you than your mother paid for yours, you know, <laughs> which is actually true. I paid tremendous amount of dollars for my education. I'm still paying off my student loans to this day. So yeah, yeah. It, it's and, and in America, it's absurdly expensive for sure. But what I mean by that is that when you create a project, you say, 
okay, I'm going to build a sculpture. I'm going to make an interactive clothing collection. You have to start building funds and you have to get research. So you are doing things that nobody else did before. So you have to invent a lot of things, which is rather expensive. But when you do it, you learn all the things that you learn. You're actually building a kind of master in a new field or different field. Like I am, you know, I have six, seven fields combined. And so all those things are expensive, but it's more than it costs to go to Harvard. Well, I mean, the the arts world, much like a lot of the quote unquote, like business worlds and the corporate worlds and stuff is very much an in group and an out group. You know, they're yep. the people that are educated at Ivy League schools that are part of the in group and then people are at state schools that are out group. But in the art world, it's more of a, you know, there are certain prestigious schools. There's your Yale and your Otis, Cal Arts, these kinds of places. And then then sure. there are not those schools, let's say, <laughs> you know, just like other yeah. schools. Yeah. But then there's also the, like, what you're kind of talking about is, which is to, I, my terminology, which I'm sure it's horribly outdated. So please help me with this is still yeah. sort of outsider artist. Yeah. So would you consider what you're talking about like an autodidact? Is that is that a contemporary version of an outsider artist? Mm, I'm not sure because, I mean, the outsider artist is like 98% of the artist. <laughs> it's probably true. So what does it mean? You know, it's just another terminology to to open a door. I think that for me, what was important with Sex Pistols and the punk movement in the 80s and then the web-based art in the 90s was to which to open up the field for the people who are creative and not make it so select that only a few people are allowed to participate in the dinner party, you know, to sit around the table and make deals. So that was, and actually when you deconstruct, which was very important in the 80s and the 90s, this word, when you deconstruct this, we start to create a sustainable environment. And that's what we're doing with ecology. We're doing it with energy. The energy is the same thing. Why should we have a monopolized energy source where we pull out oil in Norway and put it on huge ships and go all around the world with this energy? when we should be sourcing energy locally through wind power, solar, other different means. You know, we need new thinking, and we've been needing this new thinking for my, at least 40 years, and it's very slow to catch on. And why is it so slow to catch on? I've been working on that too because I thought, is it something wrong with collective IQ because we have – very high IQs individually, but when we go collective, we drop down below 100 or maybe like 95. We become very stupid. Well, that's actually true. Yeah. And I thought that that has to do, and I think as an artist, we are supposed to be working within this conundrum, you know, like what is so complicated in order to lift this environment? You know, we're not very successful in the world right now. Like, look at the world right now. It's very, it's a disaster. We have some glimmer of hopes everywhere. 
there's always a glimmer somewhere of hopes. I mean, I remember in my era, there was a Greenpeace who had just done all their great stuff in the like late 80s, early 90s. Like there was that glimmer of like some resolution coming out of that. But and then it, the problem is it's money. It's always money. It's money and power. It's it's what overrides any society's impression of what the best thing to do is like individually we could sit and say you know what i want to put solar panels on my house i want to put wind power out of my my yard i want to do all this kind of stuff but as a society we're run by large corporations and money i keep hearing society when you say society (laughs) okay but that's kind of fun society you know the money is always a catch, and I think that there is no artist alive that are not worried about that. And I early on decided that the problem was not education, the problem was money. And, and so I've been financing myself since I was 19 as an artist. I lived from my art the whole entire time. I never had a job beside art. And I meet with the students, they are very frustrated because they didn't learn anything about money when they went to art school. But I said to the last one, I said, you're the one who creates a definition of the value of your work. Nobody else can do that. You have the power to define the value. And that's where you have to go. And it's creative. It's like art. It's like painting. When you decide a canvas or a sculpture, You decide what you're going to do. You follow that. And to do that with your own self as an artist, it's also the same thing. You have to make a definition because if you don't, nobody else will do it for you. They won't say, oh, this one is very valuable. We should invest in this one. You have to. I mean, a few people are that lucky, but... Well, and there's a slight difference in what you're talking about, which is like there's value, which is sort of an intrinsic thing and a concept and feeling, versus the price of your work, like the 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 actual like euro amount being put onto it. Like that's yeah. a whole those value and pricing are kind of different because to a certain extent, it's our job as creators to not only create really interesting work, but create a reason. For in the world for there to be a value for it to be in the collection or the exhibition or the the whatever you know wherever it ends up kind of thing versus the price the price can be set by a gallery or a, or a, somebody who's willing to buy it basically because as they always say like the value of art is whatever somebody's willing to pay for it okay so i'm gonna throw in something that i learned when i was 32 or something like that Somebody asked me, how much of my work did I actually invoice for? And that was really good, because at the time, I think it was less than 5% that I could actually send an invoice for. And this person said to me, well, what would happen if you could invoice for 20% of your work? And I thought I would be well off. I would be rich, you know. But that is something that is a kind of thinking that I also meet with young people because they're very obsessed with how much they should get paid for their work instead of being obsessed with what they're working with, which is much more interesting. And when you're working like I do, I work all the time, even when I sleep and you know, even when I'm not working, I'm working 
in conversation when I party with friends or whatever. I'm always doing something. Like I think most people are, but not everybody wants to commit to that in the way that maybe a few people are doing. So what you just have to do is to try to figure somewhere along the line, how can I invoice for some of this work so that I can make a living? And I think also that what I decided early on was I was motivated by my ideas and my ideas were becoming more and more advanced and costly. So I started to develop skills how to find money to finance them. I realized that the normal channels, the gallery and the museums and so on, were very limited in terms of what they would finance. So I became very creative going in other completely different streams of consciousness where no artists were actually asking anything and asking those people like, hey, how would you like to be part of an exhibition in Venice? You know, Venice Biennale, I'm doing that in 2011, and I'm, I'm being the first artist to do new media art in the contemporary art world in this context. And I would like you to support this art project and come to the opening and, you know, book an expensive trip and travel. And, and when you come, we have a nice dinner at Harry's Bar and, you know, we go around and get some gondolas or, or whatever. And then you add that to the price and then it worked. Were these individuals that you went to or were these like corporations? Mostly individuals in my network. But I have worked with corporations too, but corporations are, of course, based on individuals. So unless you have some contact within that corporation, it is really like going into a, a beehive where everybody's like, bzz, bzz, bzz. you know, people don't necessarily know how to make decisions in there. Well, and they don't know who you are or why you're there. They might be enthused by it, but, you know, in order to, you know, it's, corporations are really like a military organization. And when you work with people in the middle management, they are not able to make decisions based on other things than what has trickled down from below, not below, but above. <laughs> I'm talking about some big corporations like Samsung, for instance, or you know, they they need to sell 500,000 more screens in one year and, you know, everybody's working on that plan. And so they're trying to figure out how they can get 80 or 100 or 200 out. And so when you come there as an artist and say, well, I need 77, they go like, oh, yeah, we can maybe help you. But then they figure out that I should be in the other department, not that department, because I need professional screens. And then they don't have that as incentive. <laughs> in, the, in that department, which is a whole different department. The whole corporation support thing is fascinating. I, mean, I love corporations that support the arts. I think they're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in some, some countries, there are like tax deductions for supports for the arts and things like this, which I think uh, there should be more of. Like I, you know, as much as I, I abhor 
large corporations, I do like the fact that as many of them do support and give back to the artistic and cultural communities, a lot of them support theaters and operas and other sorts of art forms. So it's not just visual arts. Yeah, that is also particularly a tradition in America, because supporting the art in America was the only support that would come to art and those institutions, whereas in Europe, we have cultural funding through the government or the local government and so on. So we don't have that strong tradition. But what I have noticed, especially because I worked with new media art, which was not a mainstream phenomena in the art world at all, even though the world had become digitalized, the art world was still, you know, trying to paint like 1960 or, you know, making installations like 1965. So it was strange for me that there was no report in the art world for what is going on in new media art. So I started to find support in the companies that were developing the digital world, like telephone companies, screen television companies, web companies, and so on, because they were interested. IBM, Apple, I don't remember all of them, but, you know, I I mean, we forget who they all are, (laughs) Google, whatever, you know. And there was a moment 10 years in where it started to become increasingly difficult to get support for them because it had been become infiltrated by the curators and the different people who wanted to have the piece of the cake. They finally realized that they could do this, that we had been doing already for 10 years. And what was very sad for me was the kind of realization, like one of the great galleries in America, Pace, started their own new media department for artists who do new media art. And they started to do everything that we were doing the whole time, working with city governments, getting over the budget that we had found in the region. or Because we, for a while there, we could work outside of the framework of the art institutions. And now all of a sudden it's sewed up again, it's closed. We can't get in there because the curator has taken over. It's another, another problem that we faced. I face today. The curatorial world has become absurdly dominant in the art world. I have curated a lot of exhibitions and art festivals during my time because I, I could do it and nobody else were doing it, so therefore I did it, not because I wanted to be a curator, but because I could see what would be necessary to do and contribute. But this kind of obsession with that curators should dictate the art for the artists are so stupid that they don't know what to do or what to make, that is really an insult for me, which is uh, one of the other problems that we have today as free independent thinkers, I think, you know, like creative, free independent thinkers. We don't need a curator to tell me, oh, you should make this now, Pia, because that's what we want. Is that what curators do? Because I have very limited experiences with curators. Yeah, I, it was that famous curator of the Documenta, who I can never remember how to say her name correctly. Not the last Documenta, but the one before. And she's Italian. Anybody who listens to this who are informed know who I mean. So, but she went around and she said that artists no longer know what to make. We as curator have to inform them 
about what they should be making. That is actually going on in a few places, I mind you. Are you talking about Carolyn Kristov Bakhrigiev? Exactly. You know why I can't say that name. <laughs> I'm horrible with pronouncing names. That that's one of my greatest weaknesses, beside languages in general. But yes. Mm. But but I mean, I've always yeah okay. That's a totally different perspective on curators. I always saw, and it may again maybe this is like my training of decades ago, kind of schooling like. To me, a curator is somebody who is a a a, a go between. Um, so, like you are in your studio, you make your thing. When you're done making your thing, you give it to a curator. The curator then chooses to help you put it into a gallery or get it into an institution or whatever. But they have no right to say anything about what we do in our studio. I mean, if the artist asks for it, okay, fine, that's great. But like, that's not their place to tell us what to make. That's my feeling. I agree with that. There is, however, when I'm curating, I usually work with artists who are similar to what I do, but who have taken another decision. You know, when you have like 30 things to drink, you have to choose one in order to go forward in what you do. But you see there's 29 other possibilities. And sometimes you meet the artists who took that other choice. So you can support them because you you know where they went. And sometimes we also find out that we are concerned with the same basic idea, but we choose a different execution to engage our minds and the audience with the same idea, but through different execution. But sometimes it's also that you have a kind of artist situation where they don't know how to present. They don't understand the potential of the space or the potential of their own work. And that's where a curator could be good. But sometimes we don't know if it's a curator or an exhibition architect or, or something else. In this, in Santo Pompidou, for instance, they have a curator and then they have an architect who decides everything. And then they have a designer. Then there's somebody who does the text and then one who does the marketing. They're very lucky, you know. Most of the time we do all of those things ourselves, you know. That's one of the things that I'm feeling a lot of. Like, so I feel like these days, a lot of these responsibilities that were traditionally the gallery's responsibility or the curator's responsibilities are being placed back onto the artist. So like, in some ways it's great because we're being given our own responsibility. We can sort of define ourselves however we want, all this kind of stuff. But on the other hand, it's more work and effort, and it's basically taking on more jobs that were traditionally not ours back into our control and our hands and our obligation, which I kind of like the old way. I kind of just want to be an artist and be in the studio and make my stuff and then hand it off to somebody else. I don't want to be involved in all the other stuff if I had a choice. If you had a choice, yes. I always wanted a wife who could take pictures of all my work and do all my cataloging and write all the letters to all the institutions. You know, I met, I remember we, we curated an exhibition. We had Bill Viola in 1986, and we were dealing with all the business things through his wife. So that's something that I missed. I didn't have a wife <laughs> who could do all those things. But, you know, that's been old school. That's been, for a lot of artists, they had that. 
you know, they come home for dinner and the kids are there and, you know, everything is laid out. Then we kind of work into another discussion, which is gender. But I think that just to relate to what you're saying is that I found out that I'm better at most of the things in the production side than most people I meet who are professionals, who are paid for those kind of things. And I'm also very good at getting more value for the little money that is available. I find out that, you know, I have done 40 years of crisis management. That's what I always say. There's always crisis management. So how do you optimize the situation so you get most out of it? And the more you work with that, the more you understand that it's actually the energy that you put into the project that creates the optimal result from the little money you have. That energy you will never be paid for by, you know, by hour or whatever. You have to energize everybody in the link in order to perform well. And it doesn't matter if they are paid or they're not paid. It's the same work that you have to do. And I did think that was a very interesting learning process to come to that conclusion that, you know, if you don't have the energy to really spark a project, it will just fall flat, no matter how expensive or no matter many people you have working with it. It's like a film, you know, a good film or bad film costs the same money to produce. You know, you have to bring the skills into the process. I mean, I have had a lot of conflicts. I'm sure, I hope you did too. But it's like the conflicts have been painful and sometimes absurd, sometimes extremely unjust, unfair. And you have to develop a kind of a strong resistance to not get destroyed by that also as an artist, you know. And I I think that the key word as you go along is perseverance, you know, the one who's standing in the end after 16 rounds, (laughs) you know, you win because you're still alive kind of thing, you know. But it's a really hard world, and it's easy when it's easy, like Bukowski said, but it's not always obvious. It's not always obvious how you're going to move on. For me, the two last years have been very strong demotivator or sort of like putting on a whole different set of glasses because I'm wondering, is there any reason to be an international artist? I have really been an international artist since I started. I wanted that career. I wanted to be recognized, to be able to have the freedom to create what I wanted to create. And I've done very well considering I could have done better, but, you know, I I guess that's relative for everybody. But with this COVID situation and several projects being cancelled, removed, even the thought of going on a plane to New York or whatever, you know, it's like, wow, I I hate the feeling. (laughs) And then it's also, is is it an end game, this art world? Is it an end game? And where is creativity? Where are we taking over from that moment of vacuum, that moment of dead end? It's interesting. Oh, yeah. There was a book I read years ago, uh, 
Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Karsh. And he talked about how like there are infinite games like love, life, these kinds of things. And then there are finite games like a job because there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a field of play and a set of players and all this. And like I've always tried to, well, I should say I've always tried to keep in mind that art is more of an infinite game like so it's the the production is an ongoing thing like it's not you know exhibitions or books or whatever they're just a a random stopping point basically saying like this is where i am today (laughs) like but i'm gonna keep working so like it's not a there's not an end goal for me other than well death basically death and taxes always get you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> indeed yes yeah. now you brought up gender what what uh what's your experiences in the art world with gender issues on my facebook page i put my gender as it or something like that and i did like a newsletter and it says like the advantages of being other because If you just look at the financial statistics of male artists and female artists' work, female artists' work are priced much lower. So why would anybody in their right mind say that we're a woman? This is just crazy. That's like, don't, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm sorry, I have purple hair and I have glasses, but I'm a man, I'm a male artist looking like a woman. Wait, but I don't understand the fundamentals of that. Why, if there are two pieces of art which are pretty much the same, let's say skill level, size, etc., this kind of stuff, why is a woman's worth less than a man's? I don't understand that. No, it's a psychological thing. I caught myself when I was 22 years old. I was in Documenta in Kassel, and I went in to see an amazing installation. That was a fantastic show, one of the best I ever you know, my favorite of all the documents I've been to. And this was such a great installation among many that I had seen. And then I went up to the to the cartel and read the text. And I was like, oh, it's a woman. Plus, like, I degraded it, like, in my mind. And then I caught myself and I said, what did you just do? I'm a woman. I degraded another woman's work because I thought she was a woman. So not important enough. And this actually, when I catch myself doing something like this, I know that it's true. This is what people do. They do it again and again. I'm currently in Norway. In Oslo, there's like five dominant galleries. They're, you know, 95% men. The most prestige gallery in Stavanger, where I am, it's only men. And I know that they're not painting those paintings with their penises. So it's just weird, you know, like, and sadly too, there is also a criticism somewhere for me because a lot of the owners of the galleries are women, but they participate in this psychological game and they don't have the same discrimination. Like if I'm a female art dealer, I only get 10% of what my male art dealer friends get when they sell the work. Like they get a less commission, they don't only get 5% when my male, they don't have that. They get the same commission when they sell the work as the male. So why would they participate in this psychology? And then there is also the fact that the men and most of the fortunes in the world are dominated, created by men, like Silicon Valley kings. You know, how many women are there? 
And in, in Norway, there is actually becoming quite a few young stockbrokers and cryptocurrency women, you know, in their 20s and 30s really taking off, which is great because we will get a kind of new game when women have the same amount of money as men in general, just in general. But I think the gallerist thinks that I want to sell something that is easy for me to, to make money of. And when they see a woman, they think like, oh, that's less worth it. It's more, no, it's, we have to work harder to make that a success. So they take the easy choice. It's like the bottom of the shelf. You know, why stretch up? Well, but I don't understand the fundamental behind that. So like, where does it even come from historically that a woman's artwork is valued less, or sorry, priced less. Let's not talk about because we differentiate value and price earlier. Yes. Priced less than a man's art. Like, I don't understand that because, like, if I were to walk into a studio gallery and see pieces, I would, the, the issue of what gender the person was would never factor in the fat price I would be willing to pay for it. Now, of course, I'm a liberal artist and all this kind of stuff. So, like, yeah, you're I a, would think I'm a little more evolved. A white <laughs> man in America. <laughs> white man from uh -huh, America. I'm just, <laughs> oh, I'm joking with you. No, but the thing is about this is that it's historic. And I'm not talking about the last hundred years. I think it comes from the fact that women were not allowed to read. They were not allowed to engage in academics. They were not perceived. They were not actually... There's Christine de Pizan in 1405. She wrote this book. Why cannot women do this and this and this? Medicine, literature, whatever. And she wrote the book illegally. She was not allowed to write the book. And she went into history with sources dating back thousands and thousands of years of women who had done something prominent. Their sources have later been hid and taken away by Vatican and other institutions burned in Alexandria libraries. So and some people say there is a moment in history where women lost power and men took over, and that is maybe like two, three thousand years. So we are still struggling with a long history of women not allowed to in in, in Sweden. They changed the law in nineteen 80, Sweden, of all the most liberal places in the world, that women, the children was no longer the property of the man, right? So these are recent stories. These are not like something that happened like thousands of years ago. This happened recently. And how could women get into universities? That happened slowly. Yeah, you have a lot of glass ceilings everywhere. So... You have somebody like Richter saying, like, I hate, women cannot paint, he says. That. And it goes in art, you know, it goes into the art newspaper. So he's saying, like, he's a stupid chauvinist pig or something, you know. But some people believe it. He might even believe it. I mean, I think he believes it, but I mean, like, really believe it. He, he might think that there is a million women who wants to paint now, which is true because I have nothing else to do. And so he, every time there's a new female painter, they're just like, oh my God, another one, you know, like just popping up everywhere. So there is a kind of strange discrimination. Like 
when I was doing fashion in Paris, I thought it was very weird that that they didn't think that it could be academic or intellectual. And then somebody said to me, like, you know, when a man does it, it's much more important, like cooking, fashion. I don't know what to say. I cannot enlighten you about why, but I think it has to do with that history that I mentioned. Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't even understand the whole issue of the gender pay gap that exists in any industry. So, like, no. you know, wherever you are, you know, to if a man and a woman have the same position in a, some major corporation, oftentimes the man is paid more than the woman. I don't understand that. It, to me, it's completely illogical. So, what? Hey, I, we're not going to resolve that here. <laughs> so. But I, I do want to say something which I'm very critical of women in the art world because they are quite difficult with, with each other. You have like this kind of idea that women should support each other, you know, we should be feminists and we should like give each other the backing that we need to support. But a lot of the women that I have met in art world are very, very protective of their position. They're really using their elbows and it's a lot of jealousy coming in. And it's not so much this great sisterhood that you would imagine that the women would be. And that's not in an, in Norway, where I come from, it also extends to other parts of the community that women are, you know, quite critical of other women and afraid that they should get power and they should have success. And, and maybe in France, it was very much like that when I first came. The women were petrified that there was some independent woman who had their own company and could do all these things. And and the fact that I was blonde was not easy either. And, you know, and I, I found that the biggest barrier were with the women and not with the men. The men were more collegial. They could understand what you were doing. They were also, you know, some factors playing in that they wouldn't talk to you about the opportunities the same way they would do with their buddies. They were more like, hi, how are you? How are your baby? And then they would go to their buddies and say, hey, you should really visit that gallery. He's very interested in a new artist right now. And I could hear that they did that, but they wouldn't ask me, you know. So, and that's because they have that culture and women, they don't, we don't have that culture. And then they cannot translate it when women come in, you know, that it's not because they're bad people. It's just that they don't know how to include the women in their body game, you know. Fascinating. Mm. I find there, there's two sides to it. Like a lot of times there are artists who are incredibly open and inviting and they share everything. And then there are the others that are very secretive and they, they don't share anything. And I don't, I, I probably fall more into the I'll share everything camp because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I had a professor at school at the Corcoran in DC that said, um, Basically, well, he, we actually did this as a class assignment where he set up a still life and it was a photography class. He set up a still life in a room and he sent us all each in one by one. And so like one photographer went in, they got to take one picture of the still life and then they left the room and another photographer went in, took one picture. No two pictures were the same. So the exact same scenarios, exact same equipment, exact same everything. 
no two people took the same picture. So it doesn't matter if we share and, and engage and share our ideas, our techniques, all this kind of stuff, because they're just techniques. They're not your creative idea. They're, they're not your way you perceive the world, all this kind of stuff. So I'm all about sharing as much as possible because it, it will only make us all stronger instead of sort of being secretive and, you know, being proprietary and all this kind of crap that's more corporate than it is sort of artistic to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that but do you kind of get burned out if you share all the time and nobody else does, though. You know, it's like you, you're sharing, you're giving information away and you get, got, get nothing back. You give people great contacts you know, you hook people up that you know that they wouldn't know and you do it, you know, as a kind of a community building thing. And then you find out that pe nobody's sharing back with you. I was thinking a second before we started today about when you're a young artist, you're kind of like the child artist who's looking for parents who can help you, you know, or mentors or whatever, somebody... And when you become older, you become like the mother artist or the father artist who are like helping others. But when you are the mother or the father artist, you don't get any help from anybody. So I went like from the enfant terrible who never got any help <laughs> and then to become the mother artist who's helping other people but still don't get any support in the, in the sense that it's not true that I don't get the support, any support, but I feel like I could have some help sometimes to build the community and that it would be more organic in the sense that we all need that kind of encouragement. So actually, I have to say this, I came back to Stavanger and I've been here, which I left when I was 30, kind of ran away. And then I came back here because of COVID. And I've had a very strong confrontation coming back to the place that I ran away from. Because in one, in some ways, nothing changed here in 30 years. And I changed a lot. And I see the same indifference. I see the same lack of knowledge. I see that. And I do have friends here, but I realized quickly that they have consumer identities, most of them. Like, have you seen this film title? Have you read that book title? Have you tried this app title? And then they talk, they don't talk about what's inside of there, what are the bridges, what are the ideas, and so on. And I, I realized that in Paris, I did find that particular environment that people knew what I was talking about, what I was trying to do in the art and the design. They had a long tradition of culture and education and practice with fourth generation collectors, for instance, and so on which had the language and uh, for all of that. And coming back here, I, of course, miss that. But that is also, there's very few people who can be able to cushion our world. It's a harsh reality. And I drove down the street here the other day, and I saw some kids, and I just said very loudly in my car, like, never become a genius, okay? That's <laughs> the wrong path to take. <laughs> just be ordinary, <laughs> you know, don't try. And in, in a way it was sad when I said that. It's, it's really hard these days because like, it's funny. I, my, okay. My wife is Czech and I'm an American 
And in America, when we we were being raised, we were taught like you could be anything, you know, shoot for the stars, you can be mm. the best in the world, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, I could be the best auto mechanic, I could be the best ditch digger, like. But the problem is, is a lot of things these days has seemed to be that everybody wants to be the best in the world of whatever they're doing. Like there's these the super high expectations being placed on everything that we do, whether it's making a piece of art, like it's gotta be the biggest thing on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, like to a certain extent, like it's gonna sound bad when I say it, but I guess like mediocrity is not, is sort of frowned upon at this point when you know the majority is mediocre that's sort of the definition of mediocre so like that's the majority of society so like everybody can't be the rock stars but everybody wants to be the rock stars and it's only getting faster and the expectations are getting higher as social media and the corporations are sort of taking over and like these iconic worldwide things are being created in a way that they never were even a generation ago yeah, I think this is the reaction to that. It's like people are stopping to go online. They start to only care about their local communities. They don't want to make records. They only want to go to live things. They only want to play live. People are doing, even with COVID, there's this kind of thing that people do things at home now. They don't go to the concert hall anymore. In a way, it's interesting if that happens, that people start to work in their, what we call that short-traveled culture, like, you know, like with food, that it shouldn't travel so long, it should be in the community. And I think there there is something about this moment that calls for that. But there is a price with that too, because you have to become an educator and you have to figure out also, is there any money in this community to sustain me being an educator? How do you deal with that when your client group is potentially not educated to what you're doing? And so there's that. I think that we are still on this brink of trying to figure out where the world is going to go right now. And this massive Instagram selling art on internet and so on it seems i'm happy that it works for somebody but i'm not relying on it to to it doesn't sustain me neither emotionally or financially because i cannot stand being on that app all the time and being a maniac like this it's not a way of life for me and i don't want i don't have the interest in hiring somebody to do it because then i have to train them and that takes too much time so agreed yeah there's that hype going on which people are lost in, and also created after that other thing that people young people go to psychologists they want to kill themselves they don't feel like they can measure up and you know it's a very sad situation for loneliness is huge in the world right now huge huge yeah yeah my sense of loneliness and anxiety has been exacerbated in the mm. last two years for sure exactly uh, i mean i i always was a little bit anxious and i always was a little bit lonely but like the 
the the entire lockdown covid situation and then of course the the reliance on the internet to be connected but the problem is of course that the internet is a a showcase for the best of kind of thing. So like, it looks like everybody else in the world is having a great time. And it's like, my life's not as good as that. My, my art's not as good as that, whatever. Like, it's really difficult. I had a friend who said it in a interesting way. He said like, when you're in the hospital and you have COVID and you know, you have tubes coming out and you're really feeling like shit, you don't share that on Instagram, do you? You know, you share, Correct. you share when you're like on top of the world and you're like climb the mountain. And so I think there's also some, a few people who made successes of being vulnerable on the social media saying that they had a bad day and, you know, things didn't look right. But actually I'm losing a little bit respect for my friends who only post things about how marvelous they are when I even know that they're struggling like hell. It just makes me, I think it's just a pathetic time that people feel like they have to place a success on social media. Nobody really gives a damn what you do. It's just a fake, what you say, you know, the likes that you get, whatever. It doesn't, it's a fake mirror, I would say. Fake mirrors, maybe, a good word. I agree 100%. Mm. But let's go back. Okay, so early on, you talked about how the, you feel the art world is broken in many ways. I have my opinions on that, but I'd love to hear your sort of impression of like, what are some different ways, like partly how is it broken and potentially even so what are some ways we could resolve those broken parts? If you have any. Uh, yeah, it's, I've tried a lot. I mean, I, I always try to work on the, art world from the point of view of creative growth and healing. Like in the 80s, I did a big project on a beach, actually the same year as Burning Man started in San Francisco. Me and my partner, we made an art festival on a beach in, in Stavanger because we were young artists and we had no opportunities, like contrary to what happened in New York and Berlin and other places, they were not interested in the young generation of painters. So we decided that why should we stand at the gates of the institution where all 99% of the artists were standing to get in, rather than just change the location and do something in another place. It was a huge success and also the biggest project I had done, organizing and finding the money, so, you know, big learning curve to do it. What I did find out, and maybe that was because it was Norway, is that the establishment didn't appreciate the competition for the, you know, who owns the consensus and I think that a lot of the art world is really about who owns the consensus, who decides what is right now, what's most important. And that's actually power, and it's about market control. You know, that's two things. So that's on the top of my head, I can remember, I would mention that. And then there is that other fact that we know about, that the big galleries have become bigger they have opening in 5 10 20 30 locations worldwide and they are like ships in the ocean you know like they're like huge structures and they are financed by 
this 70% in Asia, people hiding and washing their money, which is what is going on. This is what actually is happening. And when I meet people in, you know, like in a museum or whatever, who talks about this artist or that artist and about the art structure without realizing that it's actually inherently corrupt all the way to the top when you talk about this money structure that you are being seduced by here. The curators are on it, in on it. What happens, you know, how, how does Jeff Kuhn get a, an ex, an, a sculpture into a museum, for instance? I know because I work with, I talked to, I had dinner with some of the people and I even met him in Doha. So I know what they're doing. And so when you're a small fish like me, you know, in this pond, I don't have a tremendous amount of influence. I don't have a lot of support to exercise the little influence I have. So, you know, I'm in a, in a bind because I don't want to get burned out. I need to sustain my ideas. I have to continue. And in the end, I think that first I have to be honest as myself as an artist, follow what I want to do with my art. I do think that it's a good idea to work independent beside these colossal institutions because I think that they can collapse like a cryptocurrency. They can like, because they are inflated and they're not working on the proper value system. So we need more independent people taking charge of our destinies and to ignore the tendency of the market, ignore the tendency of fight against the, the consensus, basically, and say, okay, well, we don't agree with this consensus. The problem is that most everyone gets caught because if I start to get really big success, you know, all of a sudden I'm invited to be some modern art and then these collectors are buying my work and then I'm, you know, I'm done for. <laughs> I'm cooked as well. <laughs> so, you know, and that's also what happens with artists in the beginning. And I think the situation is they talked about that because they said like it's, it's a commodification of the creativity. It eventually happens to everyone because then we have become commodified and then we are no longer dangerous. So they were against the commodification of art. It was in the late 50s and the 60s because of this same reason. Well, I mean, Jeff Koontz is an excellent example of that. I mean, you know, he found his, you know, balloon animals and all this kind of stuff. And like, he could never get away from that. Like that will be his legacy, no matter what other creative idea he ever comes up with. And maybe his other creative ideas are amazing, but he will always be known for that one thing. And he will always be expected to still produce those same kind of balloon animals again and again and again. And to a certain extent, that repetition a lot of people will perceive as sort of the death of creativity as soon as people start expecting things from you. Yeah, to a certain degree, it's our problem as an art community. I think about, I also met when I was really young, I met Damien Hirst, and I saw, of course, what happened with his support from Sachin Sachi Gallery and so on. And I know, for instance, geography is very important for those two successes because they could never have happened in Norway. They could never have happened in another place. That They would have to happen in London or in New York. 
where there's a dominant press, world press, and where they have this selection of, they have a ready infrastructure to push somebody to become a megastar. You know, that doesn't happen everywhere in the world. And we have that problem, which a lot of the last 15, 20 years, maybe more, there's been a lot of political activism about the South-North axis, how to get artists well-known from other countries, also more women, which, you know, they are working on, which is very positive. So the only thing I don't like about that is that if you don't make that kind of art, should you then be ignored? You know, like, oh, you're not a political activist. Well, I am, but my art doesn't have a, a you know like a red banner that says free the free the penguins whatever you know like i don't do those kind of messages so you know like you have to be more subtle because some of the values that i'm working on are very intrinsic to circular economy and much bigger issues so that's where the headline art that we see kind of are important but also in Norway, we had a big campaign for the Laplander artists, which is really great because they were indigenous people that everybody, you know, ignored as a culture. And so that culture has a main been dominant in the Office of Contemporary Art in Oslo for the last 10 years. And, and it's really good. But what happens is that all the other art gets ignored at the same time. And that's not correct. You know, we have to have the new art that's happening now we cannot go back to the old art and make sure that it was correct you know like it was also seen on the expense of the artists that are bringing the forefront further well see your your topic of geography is very interesting because i was talking to somebody else who was in london and they were saying that these days an artist or sort of any creative person can't afford to live in london but yet you need to be in London. Same thing, New York, possibly even Paris, I don't know. But it's really hard because like the hubs of creativity and arts are so damn expensive that they've outpriced the ability for younger people to be able to live there, yet that's where they need to be. But on the flip side of that, you are living in Norway, you're a Norwegian. Norway has this amazing support structure for creativity in the arts like that's not anywhere else in the world so it's one of those hard things of like if you're trying to make a decision like ooh, should i go to a hub that i can't afford to live in or should i go someplace that actually supports what i do but maybe is not going to necessarily like help my career matter better but it's going to make it so i maybe happier more productive have more space whatever kind of things so like these are interesting choices that we all have to make of like the geographical choices of where should we be producing and where should we define ourselves as being from. Yeah, I know that in Norway we had the last 15 years, we had a phenomena, which I don't think many people realized it, but there was the architect Office Nuheta, who are famous for the Ground Zero monument in New York, of course. They won an architect competition many, many years ago in the new library in Alexandria. And there were like eight architects. One of them were from Norway. And then when they sent in the competition, they would decide, like, where should we be from? And then they decided to be from Norway. They have a New York office and they, they built the MoMA in San Francisco. And, you know, they're building a lot in America. So that became the exoticism of their 
company, which was actually designed that they were from Norway. And the late 15 years has been many international artists who have been motivated by the new space for artists in Office of Contemporary Art and there's a few gallerists, very elitist galleries that chose Oslo at their, as their location because when Art Basel or different art fair wanted to have diversity, they needed a gallery from Oslo. They didn't need another one from New York. They didn't need another one from Berlin. So it became actually strategic to do that in Oslo. And they're say, showing the same artists, the Berlin artist, the New York artist, the London artist, and maybe a Norwegian artist as well. But it's become a kind of a detour route for people to, to use that hub there's a lot of things there that are based on networks, not so much about uh, because they already have the networks in order to strategize uh, the right um, clientele, the, the, the right academic circles. And what I have found, though, is that in the 90s, no, in 2003, I had a daughter. I lived in Paris and I was a single mother or a single other, <laughs> a single other with a child. And in the period when the baby was a child, you know, I had a nanny who would come in daytime, so I would sleep and I worked all night. And I was very, very productive. So there's no way that I could say that you, as a woman I couldn't work when I had a child. But I did have enough economy to hire a nanny, and so I could be really productive. But I could not go to all the openings, all the networking events for art. I just didn't have a chance. So that is why I went to Venice in 2011, because then I could concentrate my energy. And I thought, when people see me in a gallery, and especially in Paris, they don't want to talk to me because they are not friendly with foreigners. And when they hear me talking about my you know, animated forms in 3D Max or, you know, digital art or whatever, they're less interested even there. And it's not like I'm a big potential for the marketplace because I'm a woman. So therefore, I decided that if I put up my exhibitions and my project in a place where people have a chance to see it, that's my best bet. And so I thought like that because I think that in the end, the work speaks for itself. So the fight is to get the work seen by as many people as possible. And although in Venice in 2011, maybe I had 5% of all the attendees, you know, it was an independent project, 5% of all the attendees to the Biennale, I had very important people dropping by by chance and gave me enough leads to build my career further from there. But otherwise, I was, I, and I'm still at, at the loss. How do you get people to understand what you're doing simply by meeting them in a gallery, in a museum, at the art fair, in Art Basel, in, in, in Miami, whatever, going drinking, partying, New York, blah, 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 it's great fun. But nothing <laughs> happens, at least not for me, you know. That's not where it happens. Oh, it's hard. I'm yeah. I'm great with socializing. I can meet people. Yeah. I can party with them and all that. Yeah. But it, I'm really hard at. I'm bad at uh, closing the deal. Basically, yeah. like saying like, okay, you know, we're really good friends. 
you want to include me in an exhibition or hey you want to buy my work like yeah. that's the hardest thing for me to do mm. like I can be great associates and friends and hang out with you know very interesting people but it's that that's the tough one for me for sure it's tough for everybody I say the young people they come and ask me about this they have a hard problem because they don't know what to make they're young and they get out of the academy and they have no idea because they learned a lot of things, but they didn't learn how to be true to themselves. And so they asking me, what should I make? And I, I'm going like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you should make. This is what you have to figure out yourself. Because there's no real answer how to, how you're going to, there's not one road, how you're going to sustain. I think basically, how do you sustain yourself as an artist? Not how are you a successful artist? But more, how can you sustain your creativity? That is the, the real question. How can you make sure that you get to do what you need to do as an artist? Agreed. Mm. And that's a lovely place to end this. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you too. And good luck with editing. <laughs> I hope you are enjoying and learning from the stories, experiences, and advice of our guests. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website, wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.